This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and today we're talking about how to manage the economic fallout caused by the novel coronavirus. As the disease spreads and takes its toll on human lives, it's also having devastating economic effects. Stock markets have plunged, economic output is falling, businesses are closed and some facing bankruptcy, and unemployment is rising and threatens to soar. While trying to manage the health crisis, governments are also scrambling to mitigate financial pain in the short term and prevent deep economic damage in the longer term. To help us understand what can and should be done, I'm joined by someone who has faced severe economic crisis and had to make hard decisions in the face of radical uncertainty of the 2008 global economic crisis and the resulting Great Recession. Here with me is Lord Mervyn King, who is a British economist who led the Bank of England from 2003 to 2013. He draws from his experience during the 2008 financial crisis in a new book with fellow economist John Kay. It's titled Radical Uncertainty, Decision-Making Beyond the Numbers. Welcome to Deep Dish, Mervyn. It's great to have you on. Brian, it's very good to be with you. So I want to start by asking you to briefly and I know this is a challenge, but briefly characterize the economic crisis that's evolving right now. And what are the most important issues that policymakers should be thinking about addressing in the short run? Well, Brian, three months ago, I was planning to meet you in person this week in Chicago, and we're obviously unable to do that now. So something has occurred that we never really imagined would happen. We knew that in principle, at some point, a pandemic could hit the world. That was always a possibility, but no one had any idea when or where or what kind of virus would emerge or how serious it would be and what the mortality rate would turn out to be. So we are dealing with something where we know a little but nowhere near enough. This is true radical uncertainty. And I think at this point, the question we should ask is, you know, what is going on here? This is a question that sounds trivial but isn't in a world in which you can't easily quantify what is happening. So the first question that policymakers have to ask themselves is, what is going on here? And the answer to that at present is that we're dealing with a virus, the severity of which we don't fully understand, but we do know that it spreads extremely quickly. And we know something about the shape of epidemics. Models are quite helpful from that point of view. But no model can give us a precise forecast or prediction of exactly where this epidemic will go. So governments have decided to take the route of basically shutting down much economic activity in our economies. Once we do that, then there are two questions that immediately are forced onto the minds of policymakers. The first is, how can we support the cash flow of businesses and operation? Because just as in the financial crisis in 2008, where we didn't want banks to fail because they ran out of cash. Equally, this time, we don't want the entire economy to fail because it runs out of cash. And the second and more difficult one is that since many businesses and self-employed people will be confronting a collapse of their business in the short run with no takings at all, there's restaurants and bars and people are unable to go to work, What should the government be doing to compensate those businesses and self-employed people for the loss in income which they are currently experiencing? And the reason that is so serious 
is that if we do not replace that lost income and sales of those businesses by direct support from the government, then many of those businesses will simply disappear. And many self-employed people will be unable to keep uh, their own businesses going. And many people may struggle to meet the rent payments or indeed buy food if their weekly income disappears. So I think we are facing two big challenges which are closely linked. One is to support the cash flow of businesses right across the country. And secondly, each government in its own country needs to work out a scheme by which it will support and replace the lost income. I regard this as the government having to step in as a purchaser of last resort, replacing the demand that we would have made had we been able to continue with our normal day-to-day activity. These are the two big challenges, and it makes no sense to pretend that we can easily calculate how big these interventions may need to be. We need to do whatever is necessary to maintain the cash flow in the short run and to provide the support that will enable these businesses to keep going. Terrific. I want to unpack um, those pieces. And let me start with the area that that you've worked most closely uh, in your career, which is central banks. As we know, banks have cut interest rates very low, and they've also announced that they're going to be borrowing uh, or they're going to be buying um, government bonds and in some cases even, even private debt. When central banks are doing this, what is the benefit? What are they achieving? Why is this important? So this situation is very different from a normal recession. And it's certainly different from the financial crisis 10 years ago. In those circumstances, the private sector lost confidence, uh, not only in banks, but they lost confidence in the nature of the financial system and basically stopped spending. And one of the roles of central banks was to cut interest rates very sharply, to boost the money supply by increasing central bank purchases of government bonds, and in so doing, increase the amount of money in the economy to replace that which was being destroyed by the contraction of lending by the banking system. And the aim of these measures was to encourage private consumers and businesses to go on spending when they might otherwise have said, we're not going to spend for the time being, to bring spending forward from the future to the present, to maintain activity. The current situation is very different. The governments around the world are deliberately pushing the economy down. They're stopping the economy work. And they're doing that for very good reasons, to try to contain contagion of this virus, and in so doing, reduce the loss of life. So the government is deliberately pushing the economy down. We don't want people to go out and spend and go to shops now. We need them to stay at home. But what that does is mean, I think, two things. First, the cuts in interest rates are not really the measure that's going to achieve anything in the present crisis. And I don't think central banks think that they are uh, the center part of what they're, centerpiece of what they're doing. But it's a signal that central banks are concerned and they are prepared to do anything. The cuts in interest rates will become more relevant when the epidemic has gone and we try to encourage demand to pick up. The really important action that central banks are taking now is to make it possible for the commercial banks 
to expand lending to their customers so that they don't call in loans from the private sector. We are willing to extend loans to small businesses, even though those small businesses may face an uncertain future. It's very important that the flow of credit is maintained, and the central bank can do that by buying uh, assets or either issued by companies or, in some cases, by small businesses themselves. But I think largely through its support for the commercial banking system so that ordinary banks can say to their customers, look, if you need money, we're willing to lend. That is the, the job and role of central banks in the present crisis. The question of compensation is a matter for government. That's a fiscal action. And I think it's important to separate the two in principle, although one thing that's very important in this crisis is to ensure that central banks and the government work closely together. So I want to pick up on this piece of fiscal policy and the role of government. You spoke to this earlier about the importance of replacing lost income. And in doing that, uh, there's been a debate about who should take priority, whether we should be worried about um, individual uh, consumers uh, and those who may be unemployed, or if we should direct this support to companies. Do you have a prescription of what is more important and what should be prioritized as we think about trying to have a, an effective fiscal response? So as I said earlier, I think the principle is that the government should act as the purchaser of last resort. In other words, that tells us where the help should go. It should go to those businesses, whether they're companies or small traders or self-employed individuals, who would previously have been selling things to us as consumers and for whom there is now no demand. And the government needs to step in and replace the incomes and receipts that those businesses, both large and small and self-employed traders, have lost as a result of this crisis. Uh, I don't think it makes sense to support consumers directly, and I don't think it makes sense to send payments of cash of the same amount to every individual in the economy. There are some people who won't be affected by this in terms of their incomes. So pensioners, for example, receiving their pensions, those will keep coming in. It will be difficult for them to spend uh, in the way that, that they've done in the past with the restaurants closed, cinemas closed, etc. And so they will probably save more. They don't need compensation. They need taking care of, because they are the vulnerable group to this virus, but they don't need financial support directly. The people who do need financial support are the people who were uh, working either as a personal trainer in a, in a gym where the gym has closed down or uh, an individual running a small business offering chauffeur car services where there is now no demand for drivers or businesses large and small and the large businesses that have most obviously been affected are the airlines. All of these businesses should be supported under the principle of the government acting as the purchaser of last resort. And information based on past takings over the last three to six months can be used to devise a scheme for calculating the amount of compensation that needs to be paid. I don't think we should let the perfect be the enemy of the necessary at this stage. We can't look for the best scheme. There isn't time to think through all possible options. What matters is doing something urgently 
and doing something that seems to work, that's good enough, in other words. And uh, when we come through all this, we will have learned a lot, I think, and there will be changes in how the economy works in the future. But the principles are clear, and only a government can do it. I, I worry uh, a bit that in the US there has been hesitancy because different parts of government have to work together to come up with a scheme. It looks as if Congress will now agree a scheme to support the US economy. I remember in the crisis that uh, one of my opposite numbers in the US said to me, it's in a crisis that you see the advantage of a parliamentary system in which an executive knows that it can take and announce action and the opposition in parliament will hold it to account, but you don't end up in a position of inaction because you don't have a government that can just go ahead and do what's needed. And I think that certainly in the UK, the government has acted decisively and it's taken steps. There will be more steps needed, I'm sure. None of us really know where this is going. This is an example of radical uncertainty and it doesn't make any sense to make false forecasts of what's going to happen. What it makes sense to do is to say what's going on and what's going on is that because of the measures the governments have announced, businesses are facing uh, failure and they need to be directly supported by the government. So I want to follow up on this and, and reflect on the experience of 2008. One of the criticisms that one hears about the, the actions taken in 2008 to support the economy was that um, you know, Wall Street was bailed out, businesses were bailed out, but Main Street wasn't. In terms of building political support for what is going to be a very large expenditure of taxpayer funds in countries throughout the world, um, how do we gain the political support for the set of priorities that you laid out in terms of where money should go and reduce blunt the criticism of one more time, it's businesses who are getting the benefit and uh, individuals aren't? So I think it's a mistake to think that somehow businesses are getting the benefit and individuals aren't because individuals mostly work for businesses as employees. The majority of the population are employed or they have their own business or they're self-employed. So everyone that's working and producing who now finds themselves unable to needs support. And that's very different, I think, from the situation in which a small number of institutions were, quote, bailed out, unquote. The reason that was done in 2008 was not to protect the uh, the people who owned the banks or worked for the banks directly. In fact, I said when I gave evidence in Parliament that the reason we were taking these exceptional measures was not to protect the banks, it was to protect the economy from the banks. That is, they were a point of serious vulnerability which was threatening the operation of the entire economy. If the major banks had failed, the payment system would have collapsed. No one could have been able to receive their wages or pay bills, pay their mortgage, and so on. So it was important to step in and deal with that. But I think there is a big lesson here for the future, which is the following. We have, for many decades now, run in an economy in which the idea that we need to be as efficient as possible, we must maximize profits, is the only criterion for designing companies and the economic system. 
And what we've learned, of course, is that there's much more to it than that. Survival matters. And when it comes to things like nuclear power plants or or aeroplanes, what we're very good at doing is insisting that the if one part of the plant or the aeroplane fails, the rest doesn't fail. We allow bits to fail without it compromising the system as a whole. And, and the second thing we do is to build in redundancy. That is, we make the whole thing a lot safer than we think we, we, we really need to make it, just to be on the safe side. That's exactly what we did not do prior to the financial crisis. In the name of boosting the profitability of banks, we allowed them to run down their holding of financial assets. We allowed them to issue less and less equity capital. And we ended up with a banking system that was appeared to be highly profitable and efficient, but was actually very vulnerable to a relatively small shock. And then it basically failed. And we tried to change that by making sure that banks have to hold more liquid assets and issue more equity capital so they can absorb higher losses. And I think that after this epidemic, we will ask ourselves questions of the kind, is it really sensible to run a business relying on just-in-time deliveries, which can easily be interrupted when measures like this are taken? Uh, do we really want to run our system so close to the edge that a small upset can lead the company to fail or the business to stop operating? In our health system, we can't. Obviously, it doesn't make sense to build thousands of hospitals and leave them empty just on the off chance we may need to fill them up one day. But it does make sense to think carefully as a matter of public health, not private uh, provision, but public health policy, how it's going to be possible to expand the number of intensive care beds quickly in a crisis. How can we do that? Do we need reserves in the form of doctors and nurses who may have gone on to do different things, but who can maybe be trained one week a year so that they could be a part of a reserve army to come back and support us if we have something serious happening again. I think these questions of moving away from optimizing behavior towards thinking about what we would do in very adverse circumstances will come much more to the fore in how we run our economies. And I want to pick up on that and connect it to the concept that you and John Kay develop in, in your book, which is this concept of radical uncertainty, what is knowable and, 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 and what isn't. And you make a contrast between risk and uncertainty. And the reason I raise this and want you to talk about it is that I think it goes to the heart of how we think about making decisions, both for these longer run building in the kinds of resilience you've been talking about just now, as well as making decisions about what to do in the midst of this economic crisis. So could you lay out what the difference between radical uncertainty and risk is and why it matters? So let me start by defining what we mean in our book by radical uncertainty. Um, some kinds of, of risks and uncertain outcomes you can quantify, you can describe in terms of probabilities. We can obviously do it when you toss a coin or when you gamble in a well-defined game, or even things like car accident rates, uh, it's possible to think that past experience gives us a good guide to what the probability of various events is going to be. And that requires that the 
the behavior and the rules governing these outcomes are basically understood and don't change over time and are not really influenced by our own behavior very much. So radical uncertainty is, in a sense, almost everything else. It certainly includes what have been described as black swans, and it's important to understand that a black swan, as Nassim Taleb defined it originally, was something that you could not possibly have imagined. When the European settlers went to Australia, they could not have imagined a black swan because all swans in Europe are white. And so it was not possible to talk even uh, on the boat as you went out. I, you know, you, No one would have said, I bet you 10 to 1 there's a black swan <laughs> in Australia. No one would have imagined that as a, as a possibility. And that's a subset of what we mean by radical uncertainty. Radical uncertainty is essentially every kind of uncertainty for which you can't be confident that you can list all the possible outcomes, and you certainly can't attach probabilities to them. So, for example, three months ago, it would have been possible to say, and indeed in our book, which we finished more than three months ago, we say in the book that a pandemic at one day is likely. But we couldn't possibly have, it wouldn't have been helpful to have said, and we think the probability of that occurring in the United States in March 2020 was a certain number. That, that was a, that, It's not possible to come up with a number like that, and it wouldn't make any sense, wouldn't be a helpful decision. So uh, radical uncertainty are all those things where we, we may know something, but we don't know as much as we would like to know. We just don't know enough. Now, that plays into to risk versus uncertainty, which is an old distinction which economists basically ignored and got rid of after the Second World War. But we've given a new twist to the distinction between it. We define risk as something which is more akin to what we think is the everyday use of the word in ordinary language. A risk is clearly something bad. So it's a downside outcome. Therefore, it's not volatility. Volatility in financial markets includes both upside and downside movements. And uh, it's that, that doesn't correspond to the ordinary meaning of the word risk. Risk we define as something potentially bad happening to derail the path along which you thought your life might go. So, you know, two months ago, my reference narrative, as we call it, had that I would be embarking in the United States, going all around the US on a book tour to talk about radical uncertainty. And the risk was that something would come along to stop that happening. And indeed, something did stop it happening. That, that's a risk. Uncertainty is very different. Uncertainty are the things that you don't think of as relevant directly to your own personal reference narrative. There are all kinds of things that might happen in the world. Some are good and some are bad. And I think it's very important to recognize that some kinds of uncertainty are not merely very good, but they are the driving force of a market economy. So when I talk to students leaving college, many of them will say, oh, I face a really uncertain future. And I say to them, well, you may face some risks relative to how you see your life panning out. Those are bad things, the downside risks. You might lose your job after a the first couple of months if the firm you join goes bust. But there are other aspects of uncertainty 
that are crucially important for your welfare and you will enjoy them. If I could tell you today a, a list of the various individuals who might become your life partner and the probabilities attached to each of them turning out to be your life partner, if I could tell you a list of the various jobs you will carry out and the probabilities of that and the countries you might live in and the probabilities of that, you would go home very depressed <laughs> because the joy, in, the joy in life is the uncertainty, the uncertainty, things happening. You meet someone you never thought you would ever meet. They're wonderful. You end up living with them. You discover a place that you have been, you go to and you think the view is something you never imagined could exist. You read a book, you hear a piece of music, which awakens thoughts or excites you in a way you never could imagine happening. These things are the spice of life. They're not bad things at all. They are the spice of life. And the person who really started this debate on radical uncertainty exactly 100 years ago, Frank Knight at Chicago, could see that it's this kind of uncertainty that drives entrepreneurs to come up with inventions and new products new processes, which people didn't imagine before, but are the essence of the increase in living standards which a market economy can generate. So uncertainty can be wonderfully good. Risk is something we need to manage and avoid. So one of the challenges at the moment that we're all facing right now is how to make decisions about the policy measures that we were talking about earlier. And one of the attractions of uh, what has developed by getting rid of this idea of uncertainty or setting it aside, as you, as you talk about economists doing, is that one can generate predictions about what will happen if, uh, if interest rates are cut to some number, if certain amount of debt is bought, if if uh, a certain amount of fiscal stimulus is put into the economy, I, um, the people do model those things and come up with very specific estimations of what will happen. You're very skeptical that those have any any meaning or any validity to them. Uh, in which case, how do we make decisions about what to do at a moment like the one we're facing right now, how much stimulus to provide, how much debt to buy, et cetera. Let me start by saying what we think is wrong with many models. And it's not that the models themselves are necessarily not helping us, but the way they're used is, is often fallacious. So if you want to use a model calibrated on past experience, you really do need to be confident that what you're seeing is the playing out of a relatively stable system some day things go up, some other days things go down. But basically, the underlying behavior, the process that's generating it is not changing. And in those cases, sometimes the numerical predictions can work. I mean, the classic case in the world of science, of course, is that it's very easy to design rockets to go to various planets because the laws of planetary motion we have understood for centuries, they don't change and they don't depend on what we believe about them. So you can design successfully rockets to go to uh, small planets um, because we know how those, what the laws of motion are. Most business and financial decisions are not of that kind. In fact, most of them are about unique events. The virus we're facing now is a unique event. It's part of a general pattern of epidemics. We understand something about epidemics, but this particular one is unique. And to assume that we can make quantitative predictions 
of any degree of exactitude, I think, is a mistake. We may learn as the virus evolves, and we can see how the data are evolving, did evolve in China, are evolving in Italy and Spain, and now in the United States, and use that experience in order to start to learn about where we are likely to go. But the real use of these models is not to pretend that the model is a literal description of the world, but to understand about the qualitative nature of epidemics, of recessions, of different times of economic behavior. And so we suggest the first question you should always ask is, what is going on here? And that may sound banal, but it isn't. It, it's at the heart of getting to the question, you know, what are the phenomena that we need to understand? Models can be helpful in directing us to do research on the particular things that we need to know more about before we make policy decisions. And we can learn from the past. But what we need to avoid is a black box model approach, which gives us artificial numbers that turn out to be misleading. And many of these black box models do represent bogus quantification. They have led to what we call in the book policy-based evidence rather than evidence-based policy, which is what we want to have. And the, 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 the key thing is just to sit down and ask yourself the question, what is really happening here? And what can we learn from past experience about the nature of the interventions? How do we focus our efforts in discovering, uh, focusing on parameters or numbers that we need to know more about? Which are the things that really matter? So one of my favorite examples of this is when the World Health Organization studied the spread of AIDS in Southern Africa, and it built very complicated models very sophisticated models of demographic movements in Southern Africa and link the different countries' models together. And Bob May, the brilliant Australian mathematician, biologist, and scientific advisor in Britain, uh, went down to advise them on this. And he noticed that one of the many parameters in the model that they were using was the average number of sexual contacts per person per year. And there were many parameters in the model. And, of course, the people building it, uh, it didn't know which one to focus on more than any other. But Bob May said, look, this is the crucial number. Forget the complicated model. This number is absolutely fundamental. Why? Because if, let's suppose, the average number of contacts per person per year was 100, he said it matters enormously whether those 100 contacts are with the same person or with 100 different people. So what you need to do is to go out and study and find out more information about the sexual practices that go into the construction of this parameter in your model. And when they did that, they discovered that clearly the big risk in Southern Africa was that the uh, AIDS was being spread by lorry drivers driving around Southern Africa with uh, having a large number of partners rather than people with just one partner in that one year. And understanding about the uh, what's going on here, what, what's the process that's generating it, is, is of fundamental importance. Many of the problems that we confront are unique, and they're not just the playing out of a stationary world. And we need to recognize that. And this is distinctive from physical processes. 
And the thing that really matters in the behavior of economics and finance, and it also matters greatly in the current epidemic, is that our behavior influences what we see in the process. So what we as individuals do and believe influences the outcome. And one of the key parameters in many of the models that are being used to forecast the outcome of this epidemic turns out to be the response of individuals to the restrictions that are imposed upon them. Do individuals obey them rigidly? And are there no other ways in which contagion takes place? Or is it the case that individuals obey on the surface the restrictions, but find other ways to ensure that contagion continues? So if you close schools, for example, how confident can you be that the children at home won't find a way of meeting other children in the same street or the next street and creating that pattern of contagion all over again. The answers to those questions will determine how fast that epidemic goes. And these are things which the model can be helpful in telling us this is what we need to know more about, but what the model cannot do is to tell you where it will go in the future because we do not know the answer to this question until we go out and find out more about it. So given that thinking, and, and as we close here, I want to ask you, as this crisis continues to play out in the weeks and, and months ahead, what should our listeners be paying attention to to understand where the economy, in fact, um, is going uh, in the future? Well, I don't think we should pay much attention to forecasts of the degree of downturn or recession and the likely growth rates. We don't really know how long these restrictions will be needed. What we do know is this. The government is pushing the economy down deliberately in order to solve the health crisis. Having adopted that strategy, then the question of where the economy will go and how quickly it will recover at the end of the epidemic will depend upon how many of the businesses, large and small, and self-employed traders we can support so that they will be there ready to start operating again when the epidemic ends. So I think understanding how many people are likely to go out of business and is the government stepping in to prevent that is a fundamental thing to look at because that will determine in the end, I think, how quickly the economy will rebound once the epidemic comes to an end. But I don't think any of us really know when the epidemic will come to an end. And even those countries that appear to have been very successful in containing the virus by adopting extreme measures will still be exposed to the risk of second or third waves of this virus coming through until we get to the point when we have both a vaccine that we can use to vaccinate the most vulnerable and that a significant proportion of the population has developed immunity to it. And so we're then relegating this terrible virus to the status of an ordinary flu. Lord Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of London and author of the book, Radical Uncertainty, Decision-Making Beyond the Numbers. I want to thank you so much for coming on Deep Dish and helping us understand uh, what we're all facing and the deep radical uncertainty that we're navigating through. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Brian. And may I wish you and your colleagues and everyone listening to this the very best for the very difficult weeks and months that we're about to go through. 
And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button in your podcast app so you can get each and every new show as it's released. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would like today's episode, please tap the share button and send it to them. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.